0: Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I am the author of Fit Pregnancy's Ask the Labor Nurse blog and the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, a Penguin Random House publication that came out last summer. Um, And that book is my take on how to navigate the best prenatal care and have a healthy birth. And it's based on my knowledge that I gathered over the last 25 years or so, um, working as a registered nurse and a writer. I worked labor and delivery for almost 20 years. And as I bet you can guess, I have a lot of insider information. I've also had four babies myself. And, you know, I guess you could say that I understand pregnancy and motherhood inside and out, top to bottom. Um, I write about pregnancy and parenting and maternal health and politics and feminism and health and healthcare, for a bunch of websites and publications and nonprofit organizations and I teach writing and civics and advocacy workshops too and when you put it all together it makes for a really really good but kind of eclectic career um, busy week around here lots and lots of things to do but yesterday I was teaching a workshop um, to a bunch of nursing students at a university near here, Uh, and the workshop was about civics and advocacy. And uh, someone I was introduced to asked me, so what do you do? Um, You know, that's such a classic American question, apparently. I, I, uh, I hear tell in other countries, most people's introductory question would be something like, where do you live? Or who's your family? Or what do you enjoy doing? But not here in the US. We want to know job titles. I think that's kind of interesting about us, right? Um, you know, and anymore, I'm not really sure exactly how to answer that question. I certainly can't sum it up in one short phrase that you could put on a business card anymore. I'm a writer, primarily, but I'm also a nurse. I write blogs, advice, books, web content, and articles and I edit documents. I write profiles. I tell stories, and generally plug words into my computer for clients all day long. Most of it is about pregnancy and feminism and maternal health and global development and that kind of stuff. Um, but I also podcast, so I'm a podcaster. I am gonna have to come up with a job title. Um, until I figure that out, you know what the right one is, I'll tell people. I'm a writer, I'm a nurse, I'm a speaker, and I uh, focus a lot on women. (laughs) That's not bad. Maybe that's what I'll put on my next business card. Anyway, we're heading into Memorial Day weekend, and I know that a lot of you are traveling. I will be too, probably. Um, And then before you know it, the school year is over. For those of you who are pregnant with your first, or you have a little one who's not yet school-aged, You probably think of the beginning of the year as January, the end is December. But those of us with kids who are in school, we answer the question, when does the year start with September? Obviously, it ends in June. And those blessed or hectic three months in between, they they don't even really count on the calendar unless, of course, you work for a living and your child care depends on your kids being in school. Then summer means doing the camp scramble where you book day camps, sports camps, and sleepaway camps to fill in for daycare. I, uh, or you hire a nanny, or you get a babysitter, or you get older kids to watch younger kids, or one of you works nights and one of you works days, and both of you go without sleep. I, I was, I'm a part of a knitting group, and uh, I knit with this group of women once a week. And the women range in ages from about 20 to well over 70. And a few of the 20-year-olds, college women, were talking about how they snap up nannying gigs in the summertime when everybody's out of school and parents are desperate for help. And they love the job because it pays really well. They get to hang out with cool kids all summer. And then in the fall, it's over and everybody gets back to school. Um, I, I, I hired some of those college kids myself, different college kids, obviously, when my kids were younger. You do whatever you got to do to make the summer work. Um, but you know, all those camps and daycare hours, they really add up to a lot of money. And summertime is especially daunting for families who don't have that extra money. It's really costly. And, you know, kind of circling back to the advocacy workshop that I taught yesterday, I asked this group of young nurses to identify which issues they're really passionate about and which ones they think they could change. Um... A lot of them, a lot of them answered that their issues were about making paid parental leave and affordable, high quality childcare, the law of the land. And I tell you what, I could not agree more. And it's an issue that's, it seems to be increasingly on the forefront of many people's minds. It's part of some of our candidates' presidential platforms. And I find that really very encouraging. The next couple of years are going to be really interesting. And I'm hoping that those young nurse advocates I trained with yesterday are really going to hunker down and advocate, you know, on a high governmental level for change. And of course, any big change like that, any big social, cultural, structural change like in our country, providing affordable childcare and maternity parental leave, um, that's pretty big, um, It's going to take the will of the people and a lot of pressure from people living in this country to make that change. But I am undyingly optimistic. I really do think that the tide is going to change to make parenting and parenting well a priority. And uh, affordable child care and parental leave is a huge part of that. I, I think we're going to also see some really creative solutions coming from this generation of new parents. More daycare collaborations, nanny sharing, job sharing, creative and flexible work hours. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch how things develop. Uh, so this week, I uh, rather than calling a guest today, I want to get down to some of your emails um, and answer some of those. I have gotten a few lately from women who are coming under... Uh, the high-risk umbrella. Either their health history or something going on with their pregnancies, uh, it it actually makes them, puts them in a high-risk category, or maybe their doctor or midwife has dropped a high-risk seed that's causing a lot of worry. And I think before we answer their questions, I want to define the terms a little bit uh, about what we're talking about in terms of risk. So I want to read a bit from the book today. I haven't done that in quite a while. I want to read a section right at the front of the book titled, Is Your Pregnancy No Risk, Low Risk, Moderate Risk, or High Risk? When you're reading up on prenatal healthcare options and interventions, you'll see the terms low risk and high risk, as in, she had a high risk pregnancy and needed an emergency C-section, or she was a low risk patient, so we were surprised when she developed complications. So what exactly do risk levels mean? First off, let's take one category off the table. No pregnancy is ever considered no risk. Every pregnancy carries risk, but risk doesn't necessarily mean harm, injury, illness, or death. The word risk has two meanings in a medical setting. One, the possibility of loss or injury to a patient. And two, the possibility that a patient will sue a provider or cause an insurance company to pay for damages incurred. In both cases, the definition hinges on one word, possibility. Possibility does not mean guarantee. It means something might happen, but in all likelihood, it won't. Every pregnancy has the possibility of injury or death, and every pregnancy could end in a lawsuit if something bad happens to mother or baby, regardless of whether the provider is at fault. With every single pregnancy, there's the possibility that something could go wrong, but I'll say it again. In the vast majority of cases, everything turns out just fine. So how do you know if you're low risk, moderate risk, or high risk? We start with a list of high risk factors and conditions. If nothing on this list applies to you, you're low risk. You're potentially high risk if you're older than 35 or younger than 15. You have high blood pressure or a history of preeclampsia or eclampsia or kidney problems, autoimmune disorders, diabetes, cancer, uncontrolled asthma, seizure disorder, obesity or extreme overweight, more than one fetus, history of gestational diabetes, history of premature labor or premature baby, history of baby with birth defects or health complications, any other serious or chronic health conditions. Some of these problems are a bigger deal than others. You could have conditions on this list and be considered to be only a moderate risk category. For example, well-controlled asthma or a history of cancer that's cured doesn't automatically make you high risk. You could also start out as a low risk patient then develop, develop high risk issues during pregnancy like placental complications, intrauterine growth restriction, premature rupture of membranes, RH incompatibility, infections, and pre- premature, and others. That's why high-quality prenatal care is essential to all mothers. How many women have low-risk pregnancies? According to Healthy People 2020, a US Department of Health and Human Services resource organization, 85%, or 3.5 million, of the American women who have babies each year are considered to have low-risk pregnancies. They have good reason to expect an uncomplicated birth and a healthy newborn. So why are risk levels important? Risk factors and risk levels drive many of the standards of care that determine how women are treated as patients during pregnancy. Because the American healthcare system is based on private or public insurance, every woman is considered a potential risk her prenatal care will be directed toward lowering the odds she'll incur harm and or sue her doctor. Not every healthcare care provider views patients that way, but many do, which is why they order tons of tests to rule out potential risks, just in case, whether or not their patient really needs those tests and whether or not it will improve her health. Most doctors and many midwives take a let's-just-not-take-any-chances attitude. Doctors, some midwives, and hospitals that intervene by doing tests, treatments, and procedures are motivated partly to provide good care, partly to generate revenue, but also partly to ensure that if they wind up in court, they can prove they did everything possible for their patient. Obstetricians who are too intent on finding or ruling out complications on healthy women may intervene medically when it's not really necessary. Ultimately, doing everything in the medical manual isn't safe either and sometimes increases risk factors for loss and injury. We've learned in recent years that interventions done unnecessarily, for instance, induction of labor for non-medical reasons, often lead to more interventions, like the C-section that results after that induction fails to progress and the subsequent C-sections that the mother will most likely undergo with further pregnancies. That's a major reason why we're seeing increased maternal and newborn injuries and deaths in the United States, resulting in large part from an out-of-control C-section rates. Are doctors doing extra interventions because they're more profitable? Some may be, no doubt, but most probably aren't. Most are just practicing medicine the way they've been trained, the way their hospital mandates, and the way they're required to by their malpractice insurers in order to be to be medically defensible in court. What's the solution to the increasingly risk-driven birth industry? We're figuring that out on a case-by-case basis, but for now, it all has to do with how healthy a pregnant woman, a particular woman is before she becomes pregnant. Low-risk women have more options than high-risk women in terms of the kind of provider, style, and setting they can use. A truly healthy woman can potentially deliver safely at home with a skilled midwife if she wants to, or at a birth center, or in a hospital, essentially wherever she chooses. High risk patients' options, on the other hand, are limited to hospitals because they need specialists like obstetricians, perinatologists, and maternal fetal medicine experts. Even women who are diagnosed as high risk can have absolutely normal, healthy pregnancies and births. In fact, Given the opportunity, most do. It's an amazing time in medical history for pregnant women. Even as recently as 30 or 40 years ago, many high-risk women were advised to not get pregnant. Nowadays, many are encouraged to go for it because we have the treatments and technologies to make even high-risk pregnancies relatively safe. On the other end of the spectrum, even the lowest-risk women can develop unforeseen complications and wind up in the intensive care unit or worse. Pregnancy and childbirth are unpredictable like that. The chances that you're in the entirely normal 85%, however, are darn good, which raises the question, why are so many women treated like high-risk patients when they're actually in that low-risk category? Because the way we manage healthcare and obstetrics here in the United States is seriously messed up. The good news is, experts are realizing that the way we've been operating lately is causing needless harm and things have to change. Part of that change requires that women do all they can to lower their risks, opt for care providers who respect that pregnancy and birth are usually normal and demand a better model of care. It's a two-way street. Both women and healthcare providers have to do better. So um, there's another section in the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, that is all about um, dealing with late pregnancy curveballs. And we're going to talk to, we're going to read some emails today that uh, fall in that category. So let's get to that. Um, Tammy wrote this week. She says, I have a daughter who's 32 weeks pregnant and just turned 36 years old. Uh, On her first sonogram, they saw some sort of calcium spot around her baby's heart. The doctor stated it's possibly Down syndrome. Others mentioned that too. Today, the doctor stated that amniotic fluid was measuring 23. Baby is 5 pounds and measuring as if possibly 34 weeks. They stated she was high risk related to age. No deformities noted. Heartbeats normal. Calcium spots still there, but no change. Do you have any idea what they're talking about? Yeah, I do, Tammy. I have some good ideas. Um, You know, I wouldn't worry too much about that calcium spot. I don't know much about fetal cardiology. It is not my specialty. But from what I do know, it's only very, very rarely connected to Down syndrome. Um, It sounds like everything else looks pretty good. So unless it's solely because she's 36 years old, I'm not sure why her doctor thinks your daughter is high risk. 36 isn't that old, and age isn't enough to determine a mother's health status. Um, seriously, if everything else is healthy about your daughter, um, it sounds to me like she's being tossed some curveballs. And uh, I you know, mentioned just a minute or two ago, I wrote a whole chapter in my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, about these kinds of things, these late pregnancy scares where all of a sudden the carpet gets pulled out from under you and you don't know what decisions to make. So... Um, grab the book give it a read tammy it might make you and your daughter feel a little bit better and then the best thing to do is to talk to your doctor and say look i'm healthy i don't want my tr- you know my care to be based on considering me high risk if there aren't any other risks developing and it kind of sounds like there aren't any other risks developing is home. I want to try that one. Well, that's annoying. Siri just chimed in on our uh, conversation there. Tammy, what I was saying is that I, I want you to just keep asking questions. Have your daughter keep asking questions. And as long as your daughter is continuing to be healthy and the baby is growing normally and everything else looks good about her, she can simply, you know, take it a day at a time and decline interventions she doesn't feel are necessary and take on the ones she does um you know i just kind of went through a lot of what high risk really means um, a minute or so ago so i hope that that really helps you understand a little bit more about what's going on thinking about you over the next few weeks as your daughter is finishing this pregnancy and delivering and i'm going to you know keep a a good thought that everything's going to be just fine. It sounds like your daughter's in pretty good shape. Okay, we got another one here. This one is from Kiki. She says, I'm currently almost 37 weeks with my ninth child and I'll be turning 37 in June. My midwife has said since I'm considered of advanced maternal age, I have a higher chance of having a stillbirth if I go past my due date and I should consider getting induced. I usually go past my due date, and I really don't want to get induced, but now I'm scared to death of having a stillborn. Any thoughts? Oh, my goodness. I'm the youngest of eight kids, Kiki, and I have um, three daughters and a son and a niece, so five kids. I'm way above average in my crowd. I, I tip my hat to you, madam. Ninth, pregnancy and child, you are a champion. So you're going to be 37 in June, not quite 37. You're still 36. It sounds to me like you've had eight other pretty healthy kids. Um, it doesn't mention that you have any other kind of health risk factors. It's, again, it's this thing about the number, the age. 37 um, is not that old. Um, I get this question a lot, and, and I really feel like this is one that's going to resonate with people. My short answer 37 isn't all that old, and if you're healthy, your baby is fine, and there are no other complications, then there's not necessarily any reason why you would need to be induced. If you go too far past your due date, then risks for placental deterioration get higher, but you can monitor the baby with fetal heart monitoring and uh, you know, and ultrasound if you need it to make sure he's still doing fine and that the placenta is working well. That's um, called a non-stress test when it's done with simple external fetal heart monitoring um, or a biophysical profile if it's done by ultrasound. So, you know, when you get closer to your due date, tell your midwife you prefer she did non-stress tests or an ultrasound to determine that the baby's okay rather than having an induction. And I write a pretty thorough description about non-stress tests and other forms of testing for baby's well-being along with how to deal with late pregnancy curveballs in the book. So get a copy, um, and uh, I, it, it's able to go into more depth than I'm going into here. Melissa, Melissa wrote, and hers is really different. I have a different kind of answer for her. So, Melissa, um, she writes, I am writing in response to an article on fitpregnancy.com giving birth before your due date do all 40 weeks matter i'm 11 weeks along with my seventh pregnancy this will be c-section 7 for me my doctor is suggesting we deliver at the 37 week mark i just thought i would seek out a bit of knowledgeable advice with the last two pregnancies i had a window in my uterus and a small tear with number six i am considered high risk I am one who is very against delivering preterm for convenience, but I am thinking my case may warrant. I'm hoping to get some feedback. Feedback. Oh, Melissa, thank you for reaching out. I get the, the you know, as I mentioned a, a minute or so ago, I get the, C, the question about early delivery and induction a lot, but yours is a little different. Seven C-sections plus a window in your uterus is a lot for that body to deal with. And I agree you are high risk your doctor might have really good reason to suggest a 37-week delivery so that you can minimize any damage to your uterus um, any risk of anything like uterine rupture postpartum hemorrhage and other complications Um, 37 weeks isn't all that early Uh, and the odds are that your baby will be just fine I Do understand your concerns, though, and I think you and your doctor should keep talking about your delivery plans throughout the rest of your pregnancy and, you know, just come to decisions together that you both feel comfortable with. So, you know, again, in my chapter in the book about late pregnancy curveballs, it's just so, so common at the end of a perfectly normal or not normal pregnancy for things to shift gears dramatically. And Some of it has to do with serious, legit concerns. Some of it has to do with other issues, though, that aren't necessarily associated with a woman's actual health. Things like insurance premiums and malpractice risk and scheduling issues and fear, you know, downright fear that even though the chances for something horrible happening are very, very slim, they scare the living daylights out of everybody. And it's that fear that Motivates some doctors to suggest interventions like inductions or early C-sections, and you know, even in cases where it's probably not necessary, some decisions are made by parents and physicians that are based on fear more than real risks. So, what do you do? How do you, how do you deal with those late pregnancy curveballs? Um, well, you read everything you can. You. You know, you read the book so that you understand the inside track of why doctors are making these kinds of decisions and recommendations. You get a really good prenatal education. You keep yourself as healthy as possible and talk it all out with your doctor and midwife. Um, you, you get healthcare providers who have, you know, low rates of intervention and respect how you want to give birth. But most importantly, you just keep asking questions. You ask, ask, ask until you're really satisfied. And remember that ultimately, you're the one making the decisions about induction and early C-section or waiting for labor to do its own thing. It really is up to you. So that's it for today, my friends. I want to say thank you to all of you who've been listening and downloading the podcast. Our community is growing by leaps and bounds, and thousands and thousands of you are taking part in all the great conversations we've been able to have on the podcast. We're at the point where we're seriously looking for sponsors to help us keep this conversation going. If that sounds like something you or your business want to get in on, send me an email at jean gene at jeanfaulkner.com, and let's talk about that. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. You can pick up a copy of my book, Everywhere Books Are Sold, find me on Twitter, email me your questions, and let's keep a good chat going. Bye-bye, everybody.